Don't miss the men and the magic behind Talking Tricks with Cain and Abel. We'll be live at the following places. Saturday the 4th to Monday the 6th of May, we'll be in Brighton at the Brighton Fringe Festival, and we will be there as well on May the 31st, June the 1st, and June the 2nd. June the 14th, you can catch us at Hastings Comedy Festival, and throughout August, we'll be returning to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. More dates set to be announced anytime soon, so check out www.caneandablemagic.com for more. You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast presented by Ken and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice. And it's just Lawrence, just Lawrence Abel again. Another week without Kane. We are jet-setting all around the world at the minute. Our summer work, I suppose, is, is kicking off. We're about to have the first day of the season out in Rhodes. We're lucky enough to, to have a contract that we go to Greece pretty much every fortnight and then surrounding areas in between and we fly back to the UK for all our festival gigs and surprisingly, something that people find surprising, we don't always travel together. So we did Bath Comedy Festival this weekend that's just gone. And then I have flown out to Greece before came because there's an illusion show on that I'm, I'm working on. And then Kane and I will do our, our show, the Kane and Abel show, the night after the illusion show. So I've been working on that. And Kane will arrive very time anytime soon, which is why uh, this podcast is a little bit late. Sorry about that. We It's kind of an unwritten rule that you will get a new Talking Tricks with Kane and Abel every Monday. But sometimes due to the country we're in, our travel days, that's not quite possible. So this is dropping a few days later because I was in the sky on Monday. So it's a little bit hard to get it up on Sunday. I was traveling back from the Bath Comedy Festival. So yeah, that's a little bit about us, what we've been up to at the minute. And it's kind of relevant for today's guest because today's guest is Kevin Quantum a man who has gone from reality TV star to a magician that performs all over the world at some of the biggest arts festivals and we're going to talk about his start in magic we're going to talk about those arts festivals that he performs at we're going to talk about his career there's some really really interesting highs there's some very very interesting lows that I didn't know anything about Joining us now on Talking Tricks is Kevin Quantum, mm. scientist slash magician. And I neglect to ask most people how they got into magic mm-hmm. on this podcast because most people's story is exactly <laughs> the same. But Kevin yeah. has a very interesting, a very different and a very unique entry into this world mm. of magic. Kevin, for those that don't know, tell us how a reality TV show changed your life. Right. Okay, yeah, so there's a, this, this all, I have to go back to the mid-2000s for this one, 2005, 2004 in the UK there was a reality television programme on Channel 4. Hello listeners by the way, I forgot to add that and you just took me off guard with a question, you know when you watch the radio, listen to the radio, they do this all the time. Um, yeah, so there was a reality TV show called Faking It, a British one. Channel 4, one of the big stations in the UK, and uh, this show, they, they changed people, they gave them a skill, they took them from one job and trained them to do another one in four weeks, they'd record the, uh, the journey and then they put it on television and they'd wrap it up into an hour long show and um, so the idea was that you got trained for four weeks by experts and then tested at the end and if you convinced a panel of judges that you were a professional in that skill you'd just picked up then you'd faked it. It was really good fun, nice premise. Uh, so a sheep shearer had become a hairdresser, a minister had become a second-hand car salesman, there's always some kind of lateral opposite. But then towards the end of the show there was a series where a magician became, uh, sorry, a scientist became a magician. And that's me, that's how I got into this. So uh, it was quite an amazing journey. I didn't really appreciate it at the time so I wasn't really into the world of magic. But I was doing my PhD in Edinburgh. Uh, the opportunity came up to go on this. I'd, I'd hurt my leg playing football um, and so I was um, had lots of time on my hands and I'd always loved this show so when the opportunity came in I thought I'll throw in an application form. I didn't have much on my plate 
And then, uh, yeah, one thing led to another. They asked me to come on this show. I, I was trained by a trio of magicians, absolute legends, really. I mean, even now, like, so Pat Page, sadly no longer with us, a bit of a, a legendary performer, a knowledgeable magician, really all-round amazing chap who's, whose work is still being performed by certain magicians uh, sat here in front of me right now. I saw the drinks production from the sleeve um, that Ed did. Um, so that was it's really cool to see his work, you know, continuing on in live performances. I'm a huge fan of Pat's. Uh, Nigel Mead, who is a magician based in um, just outside London, who... Um, who was a subject of a competitor podcast not too recently. <laughs> and I've not had a chance to, to listen to it, but I really do want to. Nigel messaged me about it. I'm still close with him. And the third teacher was a, a female magician who's come to prominence recently with her success in BGT, Britain's Got Talent, Mandy Moodin. Uh, so this trio kind of took me under their wing and uh, taught me the skills I would need to try and, and, and be successful in this process. Then uh, midway through the process, I was uh, surprised by a trip to Vegas where I got to spend a couple of days with Penn & Teller to, well, you don't need to tell you who they are, they are quite well known in the magic industry. And again, I kind of had vague recollections of who they were, but I was never and I didn't, I kind of knew they were famous, but I didn't really know much about them at this point. I remembered as a kid watching some guy get rolled over in a truck which had foam wheels or something. I thought, oh, that's really smart. But apart from that, it was probably a, a wasted opportunity. There's, you know, I think someone came up to me once before and said, oh man, I wish I had done physics so I could meet Penn and Teller. You know, there was that kind of, uh, that stuff going on. So a few days with Penn and Teller, they taught me a psychic surgery routine. Came back to the UK and I was working at hard in comedy clubs, rehearsing with, with Nigel, with others, getting it right with Pat directing me, uh, which was really, really amazing. I still try to remember what he was telling me. I wish I'd recorded it. And then the uh, final test took place in a club where uh, I had to fool a panel of judges that was headed by Paul Daniels. It's a bit of a who's who of magic, this this thing, isn't it, really? And I was up against uh, of, like three other magicians. They were mixed in to try and um, convince the judges. Um, and one of those magicians was Matt Edwards. <laughs> Again, another VGT um, success story in the UK and uh, so I convinced the judges it was Paul Daniels a wonderful comedian called Katie Marks who's actually out here in Adelaide with us and then there was an agent whose name uh, escapes me at the moment and I convinced them all that I was a magician and yeah it was quite spontaneous I returned to Edinburgh uh, even on the last day I didn't think my life was going to change but I wasn't able to get my head back into my my research post so I decided to to pack it in and have a stab at being a magician. Or is that all a lie? And my granddad showed me a trick when I was five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Obviously going into faking it, you yeah. were, I suppose, willing to kind of do anything and unaware of exactly what you were gonna do. When you found out mm. that you would actually be performing uh, instead of, let's say, just selling cars. Was that something that you found daunting or mm. had you had any kind of sort of experience on the stage prior to that? Yeah, well, I played for the um, Fife Youth Orchestra viola section. Um, so if that counts as stage experience, then maybe, maybe. Um, I'd, uh, I'd also played bass guitar in a band. Um, I think that's the coolest role to play in a band, by the way. But it's not, it's never the most prominent one. You're not really much of a front man. So not really, you know, I don't think I, I would say I had stage experience, stage time presenting and performing. So the performance element was absolutely daunting. Yeah, I remember faking it always, like any reality show, they try and put you on a journey and uh, inverted commas journey. And the, the whole idea that in one day I was in a room being taught a comedy routine and then, you know, towards the afternoon I'm thinking to myself, can I swear? Yeah. Yeah, oh, they're going to fucking put me on stage. I could just feel it. And then within this day they were like, we're going to put you on stage tonight in a comedy club in central London. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be a disaster. And they were like, no, no, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. So... Uh, yeah, it was a disaster. I mean, I got like a lot. I think the opening, I did some physics jokes. So the opening line was something that Mandy Moodin gave me. So I came on stage looking a bit sheepish, sort of looking around unconfidently, which I think is a good character to adopt in that situation. And then said the word fat penguins or the phrase fat penguins. Have you heard this before? Fat yeah. penguins? Yeah. I thought I'd just say something to break the ice. Okay. Which got a laugh, then proceeded to try and do some jokes about electrons and protons, but I was really high after getting off. I remember that. Gosh, 
I got a round of applause, I got some laughs, and I thought to myself, you know what, that, that was really daunting. There was never a point where I didn't want to throw myself into it though. I didn't think there was anything that I couldn't overcome with enough practice. Beforehand, on going on stage was really intense, but I, I still remember the high after coming off, because they took me outside into the, like the back alley of this comedy club, and they, and they were videoing me, asking me questions, and I was so wired, you know, I was really just sort of totally psyched up, thinking, oh my God, you know, I, I can see, I, I can do this, I can, I felt so... Um, proud of myself that I was able to have, have stood on stage and kind of held my own. I'm not saying it was an impeccable performance, but it was it was decent, you know, it was fun. And um, I guess, looking back, that's probably one of the moments that that made me decide to uh, to go for the magic thing. A few more questions on faking it before yep, we course. get on to your life after that. Um, Pat Page is someone that I've, similar to you, been lucky enough to buy a trick from and he <laughs> gives you so much time with him and he's so direct mm. um, but also so giving and you know and you feel that he wants you to to learn this and be really great mm. at it um, Paul Daniels someone I, I've met as well but I've never met Penn and Teller and I think a lot of people listening to this will be thinking what is it like to meet those how was that whole experience then of you know going to Lads <coughs> and then being brought into this room and you, you had to perform a few tricks for them. Yeah. Am I, am I right in if my memory serves me correct? Because yeah. I think I saw the programme when it went out and not since. But you must have been five or something, right? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit older yeah. than that. Um, mm -hmm. but, but what was it like spending time with Penn and Teller? You know, okay. First of all, they've got real presence. I think most people have that are successful in the industry. They've got like a, an aura to them. But at the same time, they were very welcoming. So my experience, I was set up a little bit on this part of the TV company. I was meeting Penn and Teller the next day. I was going to perform a trick, but um, there was no indication that I had to rehearse this trick. There was no structure or no uh, encouragement to do that. They were saying, I'll just do one of your tricks. And so it was a, it was a setup to fail on, on the TV's behalf. And that really made me uh, frustrated later on in the, in the series. But OK, so let's go to it. So I arrived in Penn and Teller's workshop at 10 a.m. after having the night before fallen into a fountain at the Rio Grande, having had way too many gin and tonics and gambling. Like it was, it was a rough morning for me, but you know I was young, so I was able to recover quickly from the hangover. I walked into their office, uh, the office. Let's just maybe rephrase that. Their workshop, their their warehouse. They've got this massive space, right? And the first thing we did was we had a little tour of it and. They were really kind, showing me stuff, and like I wasn't really into magic, and they said, well, you must have heard of Houdini. I was like, yeah, yeah, and they showed me a picture of Houdini on a very kind of Christ-like position um, on a crucifix um, with, uh, with chains that were just sort of in the process of being sprung open, and I was like, ah, they were like, um, this, um, this is not just a picture, though, and they're like, look over here. And then, lo and behold, there was this crucifix-like um, illusion. I wasn't sure what it was at the time, but this device. And uh, they were showing me the intricacies of how it worked. They shared with me the secret about how he was able to, to separate, or I guess escape from this, this, from this device, which was where his hands were tied with rope and chains and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it was really ingenious, I have to say. Even with an engineer's hat looking at this device, it was over 100 years old probably, it was quite ingenious to see it working. And there was a few things like that. That one sticks out in my mind. And then uh, then we got kind of down to business. They were ch I had to perform a trick to them. It didn't go well. Um, I, I stuck a, a card on Penn's back thinking that he would never have noticed. <laughs> That's right. And I think I almost got away with it. Um, even in my hungover state. No, I didn't really get away with it at all. Um, so the idea was that I, I forced a card, but I had a duplicate with sticky, sticky double-sided sticky on it. I stuck that on the back of pen, and then I rotated pen, and trans as he was rotating, that was the process of me transmitting the card to Teller, who then was able to tell what that card was. It's a really confusing narrative. Now, sadly, I remember... <laughs> sadly, I forced the wrong card... So I had a different card on Penn's back compared to the one I forced. But Teller tried to help me out by naming the correct one. But I got all confused because I'd forgotten like which way around it was. Anyway, so the whole thing, like it was a difference between a spade and a club. We've all been there. Um, was, yeah, the whole thing didn't really go to plan. 
and then um, yeah, so it kind of disintegrated into sort of like damp, damp squibbery, and so then every, we all took a sort of time to have a coffee, and at that point it was like, all right, so what are you doing? What's your plans? What do you want to do? And we're we're talking about the magic that I've done, and I think the one thing they have they were insightful enough to realize that whatever they were going to teach me for this thing had to have, had to get me excited. A lot of the stuff I'd been doing, I wasn't, I wasn't excited about because probably deep down, I didn't think the method was fooling me. So if it wasn't fooling me, how can I get excited about, um, you know, impressing an audience with it? So they taught me a psychic surgery routine and literally spontaneously grabbed Nigel, who was my mentor at the time. Uh, they, they just started doing a routine. It's a routine I've never seen them do before. I got my own personal private performance. They, they brought this ring out. They said, it's gold. Try this. Bite on this. Nigel bit on it. The ring vanished. And they were like, oh my God, what, what the fuck? You've... Well, you must have, you must have swallowed it. Then they literally just this. Imagine like in a romantic movie where the guy just sweeps all the the cutlery off the table. They did that, laid Nigel flat on the table. Nigel Mead. They pulled his shirt up, right? Exposed his chest, and then started operating on him. Right? There was blood squirting everywhere. His jeans were ruined. You know, it was, and I'm like going. I was just going, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> they didn't give a shit, you know, they didn't, they were just in there, and Nigel was like, going, he was he was the one that was completely fucked, because he was like, didn't know what was going on, they were attacking him essentially, psychic surgery, blood squirting out everything. Then uh, Taylor's hand went into Nigel's stomach, pulled out the ring, and said, uh, so there you go, this is what we're going to teach you. And I'm like, my jaw kind of hit the ground. I thought, this is going to be amazing. You know, at last, something that had colour, that had excitement, that had verve. Um, it, it wasn't like a, a really sort of, what I'd done before is like torn, restored paper, which is great, but the version I did was a bit transparent. Uh, I started learning card slides, which were giving me joy, but this was the first time I think my eyes lit up watching something that had such energy to it. And I guess like, again, on reflection, that's, that's where that's where Penn and Teller that's why they're the best you know that's why they just were able to instantly turn it on and shine they had great material great energy and uh, yeah it was a pleasure and a privilege just to have that performance from them so yeah and then we spent we spent time rehearsing it and out the back of faking it mm -hmm. was it an easy transition then for you to go from out, out the back of that TV program to becoming, you know, a working magician. You're well established on the fringe circuit. We're out here in Adelaide at the minute. Not mm -hmm. a lot of British magicians do get the opportunity that we have to come out here. I know, every it's year. amazing. You kill it in Edinburgh most years. Was that an easy transition then, straight out with with all this, or um, what were some of the early struggles? Financial ones were the so yeah when you when you sort of quit something and and then start something that you've got no experience in doing there's uh there's there's obviously a skills gap there that has to be addressed and so Nigel was kind of running all of the TGI Fridays close up magic scene at the time so he got me into a restaurant near near me in Glasgow in Scotland. And I was performing there once a week. Then that kind of grew to two a week. But it's still like only about 200 a week, something like that, two or 300. A, something around that, 200 a week max. I think it, sometimes it was like 120. So I was really struggling. So I did some tutoring, tutoring on the side, maths and physics. That's quite seasonal though. Really after the exam season's out of the way, most parents don't really want... They don't really need their kids to be taught. It's usually a sort of a knee-jerk thing. So I... Um, I uh, re-established my connection with a friend of mine, Gary, who worked for a fast food chain called uh, McDonald's. Some of your listeners maybe may have heard of this company. And um, I uh, he offered me a job. So I took this job working at McDonald's. And this was, um, I thought, a stopgap. It ended up being an 18-month stopgap. And uh, yeah, working for McDonald's is a rather humbling experience, I would say. The experiences I've had are, are definitely mixed. I wouldn't go back to work for them. And that's mainly because... It was shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there are a few moments that stand out. So yeah, the day after Faking It aired, I was working, I'd been scheduled to work. So this is like, oh my God, it's so hard. It's really hard for me to tell you this because it's just really hard to relive because there was a lot of things going on in my head at that moment. But I just been on TV to like millions of people around the UK, inspiring them. Let's look at this guy. He's gone on this journey from from scientists. Now he's a magician. And I was working at McDonald's and it was just like, it was a bit embarrassing 
um, there were a lot of magicians in Edinburgh who'd kind of were aware of this, and and I was like the butt of some of the jokes. You know, I I could feel it. In fact, my mate Andy, who's not even a magic in the magic scene, he'd spoken to some people he knew that were related to magic, and you know, I was there was definitely um, sort of pointed humour aimed in my direction. Behind my back, fortunately, because it was kind of would be upsetting, I guess, to experience that. But yeah, after faking it aired, I was on I was on the shift and I was working front counter and a guy came in, ordered some food and he was looking at me, and I started shitting myself because um, he was looking at me for quite a prolonged period with a look of of uncertainty, like he could recognise me but he didn't know where from, and I knew he, he would work it out sooner or later, and sadly it was one of those Philly of fish orders that takes fucking six minutes to cook, right? So we're standing there waiting, I had the time to process, and I'm just getting more and more nervous, you know, just trying to make fries or whatever, and then eventually I could just see it happen, I could see him just out the corner of my eye, just his body language, he's straightened up, you know, he's... He's, he went full struck, um, sort of chest puffed out. He had he realised where it was from, and I instantly didn't even turn around. I walked right into the kitchen, out the door, into the back corridor. I just had like a little breakdown, thinking, right, what is going on here? This is just, um, yeah, being recognised in McDonald's a day after you've just inspired millions of people was a really tough one, and and it took me, it's it still took me the best part of a year before I was actually on a stable enough footing to leave. You know, it took me, it was, I would say it was 18 months between faking it, finishing, and me actually being able to claim I was a full-time professional magician, you know, that wonderful phrase that's on everybody's website, um, that's how long it took me, and it was, it was a hard journey, and the thing that got me through it, the moment I remember it, the, th- the moment in my career that got me was doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, that was that was the catalyst for me just to say this is all stopping and I'm doing this now well we're, we're kindred spirits there with right. that because the Edinburgh Fringe was when uh, uh, Ed and I finally went and packed in our sort of I suppose that we had day jobs and then were sort of part time day jobs and then part time magic and then we mm. did the fringe and we were like we can't go back if you haven't experienced the fringe it can be quite alien to people and there's mm. so many sort of entry levels in it you're now kind of at, at one of the big four, but I know mm-hmm. that wasn't your first experience with Edinburgh, and you've had a lot of experiences with Edinburgh. Mm. Um, so kind of talk me through that that first year and how you kind of first started performing there. Yeah, so I was really naive. The, the whole, I didn't know the scene or the circuit. I didn't know there was a big four. Um, the Free Fringe may have just started around then. It was 2006, oh I think it was, when I did this show. And, um, but it wasn't really prevalent. And all, all I did was, I just remember like, I was with my flatmates and they were like, you've got to do this. You've got to just, I was thinking about applying to be a physics teacher. You know, I'd, I'd just gone from this point where my mate John, who's a wonderful chap, just sort of said, look, just give me a slap and told me just to, to get my head down and start working, which worked. Once being encouraged to do it, I just went online um, onto the internet on my desktop computer, my shared desktop computer in my flat with my three flatmates and just did some research and came across this venue. I can't even remember now who, who it was. Oh man, who was that guy? It's, it's like something no, Nova or something like that. I can't remember now. Um, and they owned, uh, they, they rented the venue and uh, it was in a church. It was halfway between the Pleasance and uh, Gilded Balloon, kind of two of the big venues at Bristol Square area. And uh, it looked like it was um, had promise. It's Rox Roxborough Hall or the Roxy Assembly Roxy as it's called now. And they had a lovely little space downstairs. It held about fifty or sixty. Audience on array, good sight lines. And I took it and I did a show called Tricks I've Learned Since Being on Telly, a title courtesy of a chap called Noel Qualter, um, wonderful magician based in London, who's uh, got a really instinctive uh, brain for magic and humour. Uh, he's he's a very smart guy. So um, that was a really uh, nice nice sort of title and it was relevant to me and uh, it was very rough around the edges I not only decided to do magic but also decided to do character comedy with the magic so I had three comedy characters so the magic was happening to or around uh, my sister was my co-star 
And uh, yeah, there was a, an inappropriate children's entertainer. There was a, a scientist who was a mixture between Cartman and Eddie Murphy. Very offensive, but very funny. He was the standout character, I would say. And then there was a, a Ned or a Chav, a Scottish uh, delinquent. Uh, who did razor blade routine? So I th I thought it was quite a decent show. Come the end of it, I've still got clips of it. I've got like I've always always video all my shows in, in high quality whenever I'm doing a run, and uh, I've not watched it back in a few years, but I have a bit of pride in it. I thought it was quite a decent enough show for a first outing. Um, so that was my first experience, and it was actually quite a positive one. Um, I made a little bit of money. It was a paid venue. It was a lot of money. I remember that p paying up front, but made some back and paid for the expenses and yeah that was uh, and then had a, had a break for a year so how many years ago mm. was that all right so if this is 2000 and what 2019 just turned yeah it would be just over 12 years ago wow and have you been back to edinburgh every year or have you had a few breaks or was there a, a couple of years off because yeah so i live in edinburgh so when you say back to edinburgh that's a weird thing yeah um, for people that live there to, to hear and we always pull people up on it but i know what you mean so have i have i done the fringe every year no i've not um the next year i didn't i just kind of like got sidetracked and this is such a dangerous thing for people to do especially creative people who get into magic for the reason of of wanting to create really cool original work you just get sidetracked by the, the dollars don't you you get into the corporate circuit and then you become like a pocket wizard and um, you're you're just being hired because you're a magician and someone some event organizer based in Bristol just needs to tick the magician box, you know, and she's like, oh, we need a magician. And what can, I mean, they don't have a clue because there's no benchmark and, and every magician's website kind of just about looks the same these days. So like, what's what's there to make you stand out? Oh, you've been to the Magic Castle, great, so is everyone else. You know, you've done, you've got the Magic Circle. There's so many generic uh, markers of success that everyone has and Anyway, that I got sucked into that world, and um, it's fine. You know, I saved up for enough to pay your deposit on my house. Just being part of that millennial generation, that was impressive. I had to move home with my mum and things, but saved up, doing all that work, and I decided to work through the summer. I had a contract with this really wealthy Polish family teaching this kid how to do magic. They were paying me thousands of pounds for the privilege, so I decided to do that. But I regret it. I totally regret it, because I started out with like Chris Cox, and I think Pete Furman was probably on his second year then maybe his third year I can't remember now but I was I was in that sort of there was very few magicians on and I was one of three or four at that point can you imagine can you imagine it the fringe was so like Bristol Square was dead I remember flying Bristol it's so different now it was a good experience and, and, and then I came back the next year with a guy called Alan Hudson um, we did Tricks of Learning, no, it was uh, Magic to Get Girls By, which was an experimental show about attractiveness. We prove, proved that magic makes you more attractive, approximately 15% more. And we have empirical data to prove that, to back that up. That was a fun show. I met my wife that year in the Pleasance Courtyard. She was in that show. So uh, it worked, I guess you could say. After that, started out uh, working with Colin McLeod, Colin Cloud. We wrote a Halloween show called Son of a Witch which was fun to do, and that was the blossoming of a, a trio called the Colour Ham. Then we, then we started doing the Fringe again with that. We did the Fringe for three or four years with the Colour Ham. And then towards the end of that, things started, the wheels started coming off that. Colin went solo. Um, I had a young family, Gaff had a young family, so we were. it was harder for us all to get together. I started doing solo shows then as well. And yeah, it was four years ago, and so that's really where I see the start. I had a bit of experience doing it, but I think after the colour, the colour ham probably leading into my solo shows, uh, yeah, you can't discount it, but I think Quantum Magic four years ago was the first of the of the Kevin Quantum series that's that's now becoming a bit established. And I want to talk about what a Kevin Quantum show looks like and how that is evolving and developing, yeah. but one quick question before mm -hmm. then, from someone that performed when there was less than a handful yeah. of magicians at the end of a fringe. Um, why do you think so many more magicians are now performing at the Edinburgh Fringe and what, what do you think are some of the reasons that uh, more magicians are going up there on a, on a yearly basis? I hope that it's about like personal development. I hope it's like an, an, uh, an, a, a voyage of uh, improvement for people. Edinburgh is probably one of the only, probably the only place in, in the UK where you can go for uh, a month and do a show every day, at least one show every day and 
rapidly get better because that is the thing, isn't it? You want to get better quickly. And comedy clubs aren't really the best place for all types of magic. You might be able to do like a Conjuring at the Court or an Entertainment up in Glasgow or, a, you know, an Edinburgh Magic show. And, and they're, they're like once every month. You know, you're not getting stage time every single night. So that was the draw, isn't it? That's the draw. You're going you're gonna to come up and do stuff. Magic sells, right? Magic sells. You know, it sells well on the fringe. Um, sells relatively well here in Adelaide as well. Um, and good magic sells really well. So if you're really good, then you can you can get you can you can do good things, really amazing things. My hope is that Edinburgh's there as a, a ground for people to experiment and do new stuff and and try and move magic forward. That's what I hope. Uh, I don't always see that, but there's enough of it going on for me to sort of be uplifted. I mean, I try and make at least half of my shows new magic every year. It's really exhausting, but I'm not averse against taking something off the shelf and working it. The, the, the idea that there's so much more now than there was back then is just because there's more people now going to the fringe. They want more magic. There's an appetite for it. Free fringes opened up magic uh, venues to a whole bunch of people that don't have three, four, five, ten grand to put up front. And that's a great thing as well. And, and there's so many magicians now getting better. And that's a really wonderful thing to see. And they're coming back, they're improving. You know, it's the ones that stick at it. They're the ones that will develop. I remember seeing Paul De Beck and not thinking too much of him. But he, he had a spark and he came back every year and you could see improvement and respect grew from, from his determination, you know? And I just watched him develop every year. I saw him in Adelaide a few years ago. And now you see this completely well-rounded performer who's got so many skills in his arsenal. You know, he's, he's just fantastic. He really is. He's, and... Um, that journey is just through sheer persistence, having a desire to actually not do this corporate close-up stuff that, that we all get sucked into and yet it's really hard to pull yourself out. And he's done it and he's made it and he's now illusionisting it. Colin Cloud, he's, he's done it, he's now doing the illusionist as well. That seems to be the pinnacle, doesn't it? The, 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 the bar that we all reach for uh, these days. And they've come from this Edinburgh circuit, this Edinburgh scene where they've cut their teeth, gotten good, and then and gone on to do great things. What then does a, a Kevin Quantum show look like now? Oh, it's changed. I mean, I'm trying to do magic and science and pull them together. So those are the two elements, the main elements. And uh, I've made a lot of mistakes, but that's, that's the great thing about it, I think. Science and magic aren't easy bedfellows. In fact, if you write the word science into Microsoft Office and right-click, I'm sorry, the word magic, right-click, you get a list of synonyms, you know, words similar to magic, illusion, whatever, bewitched, or stuff like that. But at the, at the bottom, you get the antonym, which is the word that's the opposite, and the antonym for magic is science, right? So trying to take two things that are opposites and pulling them together has, has, been, has been a real challenge uh, for me, and I've had to just try to work out, am I a scientist doing magic? Am I a magician doing science? Uh, what am I first? Am I a magician first? And um, how does that affect the ethics of the science I'm putting on stage? There's a whole minefield of stuff out there that I had to wade through and um, reconcile in my head. And uh, so that's taken the best part of four years. But now, what does it look like now? So now it's like uh, an early 1900s science demonstration. Like I, I build crazy contraptions and put them on stage and, and then I turn them into magic tricks. I uh, find signs that I'm was really into. Whenever I see something these days, I used to think to myself, um, uh, that's really cool, and then forget about it. But now I'm thinking, that's really cool. How can I put that in my act, all right? So, and then deconstruct it and try to work out why. So these days, the stage, Vanishing Point, my most recent show, the, sh the stage is dominated by a, a massive harmonic pendulum, which is a, a system with, um, nine cannonballs suspended from the roof of the theatre and they swing back and forward like pendulums or pendula god I should get the Greek plural right shouldn't I and um, there's, they're on slightly different lengths of tether so the outcome is these beautiful shapes and um, kind of like a Newton's cradle you know with the ones where the balls bounce back and forward the steel balls click 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 uh, but it's, it's a bit different they kind of um, they swing uh, in a slightly different plane and uh, yeah, this idea came to me that I could, rather than upscale it, make the, pen, the pendulum bobs into cannonballs and then uh, blindfold myself and walk through these things. Uh, and that's the finale to the show, really. So this harmonic pendulum, um, I set it off. It's beautiful. No one's ever put one on stage before. It took me months to build it, but it works so well. So you, you'll see in a Kevin Quantum show, I hope, and it, they, they've changed over the years, 
you see magic you wouldn't have seen before. Uh, you'll see really quirky um, manipulations of science, and you you'll see some honesty. I don't put myself out there as the all powerful magician character. Um, so there is a bit of uh, there is a bit of vulnerability in the character, um, but there's also some really really good magic, and I'm I'm getting much better at presenting it now and much more confident. I do have a kind of comedy sketch side to my character as well. I spent most of my life doing comedy magic. So if you come to my late night show, you'll see something else. You'll see um, swearing and um, you'll see like a love letter to the past 10 years of my material, like all the routines that I've developed that may have been mothballed that have been brought back in. So and for my next trick is my kind of outlet for all of that. And I people say that's my best stuff, probably because it's my most well-worked and I'm most comfortable on stage. Don't have to rely on remote controls and electronics and lasers and all this sort of stuff and backstage assistance. And for my next trick, it's just me and, and sleight of hand. So it's a very relaxing show uh, to perform. But yeah, it's I, I guess that's what stands me out. I just, uh, and I think it should stand out. Most stage magicians, really, the idea that you're building something and then putting it on stage. Like I love what Morgan and Wes do, their sets, their the stuff they create, watching them work is I think they've got it nailed. I think they've and it's only because they've done it for so long. You know, it just takes time to get to that point. Uh Collins work's usually quite unique, some really nice unique presentational uh, stuff in the last few years. As well as the mentalism. Um yeah, so again, it's all come from that Edinburgh circuit, that fair of creative environment. So um, I, w I would recommend every magician to do it and then to try and not do this close-up corporates because it's just going to wear you down. I think it affects your mental health and this is much more healthy, this, this environment to work in. I want to talk about the Adelaide Fringe and the differences maybe between that and Edinburgh. I want to talk about Brighton because I know we're going to be uh, yes, neighbours mm. in Brighton uh, mm. for that festival. But I just want to touch on one kind of Edinburgh thing whilst yeah, we're in that spirit, and that's the Edinburgh International Magic Festival. Oh yeah, of course. That you've yeah. run. Kind of mm. tell me when that started, how that started, and some of the amazing magicians you've been able to book through that. Yeah, so I kind of have this uh, altruistic side of me as well that I wanted to give back to magic. So the Magic Festival came from that desire, and also my wife. Um, she wasn't my wife at the time, but. When we met, she was uh, an events organizer with a, a thirst to do to do work in events, and the thought was to do a magic festival. We'd been to, uh, I think we'd seen South Tyneside had one, and we kind of felt it was a festival on the on the outside, but there was it was very much built around convention as far as we could see. There wasn't, um, I think there was some some touring shows that went to schools, but there wasn't uh, what we felt would make a festival element. We saw Blackpool, we love Blackpool of course. Um, sad that I've missed it now because of Adelaide for the last few years. And uh, I think we, we were just looking around thinking there's no, other, there's no what we would call a festival of magic in the UK. So uh, what we meant by that was a selection of live shows, different formats, um, productions that people uh, all together in the one space. So we started it and uh, we started it in Edinburgh, we are quite ambitious and we programmed a lot of acts and that was 10 years ago, this is our 10th year now of doing it and uh, yeah it was an outlet just to, for me just to hang out with some of the best magicians on the planet, I mean over that 10 years we had Paul Daniels, David Berglass uh, coming to Edinburgh, Jamie Harrison who's the designer behind all the Harry Potter live stuff, him and I became friends uh, Juan Tamariz, oh, that was amazing. Just standing on stage in front of like 500 people introducing Juan Tamariz to like a ecstatic audience was just an absolute career highlight. Learning some Spanish, you know, and letting them all really go crazy. It was really, really wonderful watching that happen. Um, some friends of mine like Xavier Mortimer, who's, who's now working in Vegas, he's fantastic. Just finished with Cirque du Soleil. Him and I became close because we, 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 we sort of took a chance on Xavier right in the early days. He came to Edinburgh like 10, 11 years ago with a show called The Shadow Orchestra. We thought it was a music show and my wife and I went to see it. It was a, it was a magic show. It was amazing. One of the most amazing magic shows I've ever seen. And uh, I'm not surprised he's had success. You know, he's really, really good. Um, so Xavier, we've had uh, some of the great European acts now, I guess, uh, Hector Mancha, fantastic manipulation act from Spain, Charlie Mag from Spain, um, Prince of Illusion, uh, we've had, we've had there's, a, there's a bunch of Korean acts that come over to Edinburgh every year, they have a 
fantastic show. What, do you remember what it's called? Snap. Snap, yeah, and, it's beautiful. Uh, if you've ever been to Blackpool, you've seen a Korean act who has this wonderful sand act where everything turns into sand. Um, God, his name escapes me at the moment, but his, having him on stage in Edinburgh was amazing. Le Chapeau Blanc, Prince of Illusion, uh, Hector Mancha, some of the greatest Minipacks, the greatest illusionists, um, all coming to Edinburgh. It's just been amazing. You know, you just meet your heroes, you get to hang out with them, see how they work. Uh, and then some of the, the, the amazing British acts as well, like James Friedman, he was up last year, um, uh, John Archer, Alan Hudson, Rob James have come up, did shows, um, Colin of course, Colin McLeod, he did something every year for a while, and uh, yeah, and then, uh, yeah, it's, it was just amazing, there's so many that I can't even think now to name them all, and it's it's been great being able to put back into them i've always seen it as putting back in because it never made money it was always something that i would spend my hard earned uh close-up corporates uh, i'd spend that money usually between uh, a few thousand and sometimes sometimes we've lost as much as like ten thousand on this um just putting that back in and whenever you create anything like that you always put yourself out there so there's been some i would say unwarranted attacks of what we've done over the years which are just silly and it was really funny seeing Blackpool Magic Convention become Blackpool Festival of Magic for a year or two. I don't know if you remember that piece. And we, we felt in some way responsible for that. Or or maybe there was a funding thing that they needed to be a festival for. I don't know, but it was always really quite quite good to see that then this festival trend taken off. So, uh, yeah, I've got such fond memories of it. I have less and less time for it these days because I'm, I'm making shows and touring more, but uh, I hope it continues. And was there a, a first for that convention, sorry, that festival, <laughs> the first year that you did it, or was that something that kind of had to, to grow along the years t to become, you know... Oh, I had to grow, yeah. yeah. I mean, definitely. The first year we didn't, you know, didn't know our arse from our elbow, I guess you could say. So what um, that means is I didn't know how to do a festival. And Svetlana, although she'd studied it in paper, she was um, much better equipped than I was. But like, I remember our first meeting with the Lyceum Theatre, we came in, you know, this is like a really well-established theatre in Edinburgh, and we must have come in walking in like starry-eyed, we're going to put on a magic show, we're going to do magic tricks, and they were like, alright, have you got any details? No, <laughs> no, it was just hilarious, like, this high-end theatre, and they were like, alright, we'll give you, we'll give you it for a day, like, just don't fuck it up, um, don't burn it down, all that sort of stuff, and we became such good friends with them, you know, the whole relationship we developed with Ruth, Ruth um, the artist, the producers at the festivals um, theatre. Then we moved to the Festival Theatre, which is this 2,000 seat venue for our gala show for a few years. That was amazing. Um, that was a theatre that the Great Lafayette burnt down 100 years ago or so, and then it had to be rebuilt. Uh, so it's got real his, his, um, heritage, and we have the Great Lafayette Award that we hand out. So it was great to be back in there. It was amazing. Um, we've used a lot of iconic spaces around the city, but it's grown every year. I mean, it, it's now kind of reached, a, I would maybe say, a point of saturation. Uh, magic's niche, and we're not Blackpool, and it's aimed at the public, and there's only so many public magic lovers out there, and in all honesty, the Fringe probably has more programmed magic shows now. All we have is diversity in terms of the content of magic. It's not just one of our shows, it's uh, other formats. So, yeah, it's... Um, it's been great. It's grown, and it took. Uh, if you're going to do it, give me a call before you do. Like it's hard work. It's like anywhere between three and six months of my year working unpaid. Imagine that. That's how much it takes, and uh, only do it if you love it. It seems like every time I get in a taxi in Edinburgh, all of the cabbies have been to a festival show, though. So. I guess that's cool. Okay, um, that's yeah, good. That's what I always hear from them. They're always like, oh, have you been during the Magic Festival? Well, have you really? Is yeah. that what they say? Oh, that's great to hear. I didn't realise cabbies were such fans of it. Um, we need to target the cabbie audience next year, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, yes, I want to talk about what's what's coming uh, with mm. Brighton and then any other things that I don't know about. But as we're here in Adelaide, uh, give us a quick kind of snapshot on, on how you found the festival as we're talking the day after you've closed okay so we've been here for what five six weeks now this is two months for me on the roads uh, I started off in Christchurch which has had a hard time recently then Perth uh, Western Australia and then landed here in Adelaide um, uh, how do I feel I feel exhausted um, if you could see me right now you'll see a cold sore in my top lip my body just knows it's time to stop and 
it's going to just take a while for me to just to to recuperate but it's been it's probably been close to in that two months like maybe 80 shows a lot of days doing sometimes two shows a day that doesn't even include my open spots of which I've done countless in that time I'm sure you have as well so I'm physically exhausted um, I'm totally inspired I've never had such a creative season I've been to see so many shows met up with a whole new bunch of acts from different genres and, and got material I've come up with two ways of presenting magic that I'm so excited about putting into the show. One was something I saw a, a mime artist do, and I met with him and asked him, can I, can I take this and do this for magic? Kindly agreed. I'm so grateful to him. And then the other one just came from fucking about in an open spot, just having this idea for creating a bit more of a high-energy vibe. Um, so both of those are going to be in development now for Edinburgh for August, and both of them have been tried out. So I'm super excited about that. Um, Vanishing Point really matured over here. It's done over 50 performances now. I think a show needs to do at least 50 before it kind of settles, and then 100 before it gets really good. That's my general rule. So Vanishing Point's now sitting between 60 and 70 as a show. So I think, yeah, another 30 or 40 shows, it'll, it'll actually come of age. Um... The weather is balmy. It's been relatively nice all run. There was a few days where it hit over 40 degrees Celsius, which was fucking mental, but doing shows in that weather is, is very challenging. Uh, we're sat in the suburbs right now. Everything's calm. I guess, like, it's just a sort of kind of happy sad. You know, I, I love being on tour. I'm at my happiest when I'm performing every day. I feel like I'm working. Um... Uh, but I get so tired as well. Like I, I usually I can get by in seven hours, seven and a half hours sleep. But when I'm performing, I need about nine. I just I'm so tired, and um, yeah, it's just it's been amazing. You know, Adelaide's such a lovely city. I've had such fond times here. My show's really well received. Um, I came off the back of winning winning Best Magic last year at the festival. So I had a bit of a reputational standard to uphold, but yeah, I just, I feel happy, sad. I'm really happy that it went well. I'm sad to be leaving. I'm happy to be seeing my wife and my daughter. Um, that's the best way to describe it. And how did it feel to mm. um, to win that Best Magic Award last year and be kind of recognised as the best of all the magic shows at the festival? Yeah, well, I mean, that's definitely a point of view, isn't it? I mean, yeah, being being awarded something is great. Yeah, someone told me once, awards don't matter until they matter, which I think is a really good way of looking at it. So it was great to receive it. I really, really am honoured that Adelaide Fringe bestowed this upon me. I really am. I... Uh, took it graciously I took it with surprise I mean that year there was some great acts so the local guy Matt Tarrant he's packing in like five six hundred people a night Ben Hart was out here he was in the running for it who's incredibly talented magician as well um myself you uh Dom Charlie Caper I mean there's such a a wealth of magical talent out here I'm not even discounting Cain and Abel the fantastic Cain and Abel. Uh, there's there's so many so much going on. So yeah, it was a real real surprise to, to get it. Um, to take it back home was was a privilege. Um, does it mean much to anyone outside? I don't think it does really mean. I mean, it's just another CV point, isn't it? You can pop it next to my Magic Circle logo on my website. Um, but everyone's like a, a best Magic winner in Adelaide now. I think there's like so many people that have got the weekly awards and things. And yeah, it's. I'm just, I'm happy my work's, more important than awards are just getting lots of people in to come and see my show, normal people. I don't care massively about awards or reviews. I care about the people that come to see my shows and their opinions matter greatly to me because they paid for a fucking ticket in the first place, whereas reviewers haven't, you know. And they, 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 we bought their ticket. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, we paid for them to come to our show. Um, even though it's a, a reduced rate, it's still heartbreaking, isn't it? Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's that, it was brilliant. It's the first time I've ever won anything. It took me completely by surprise, and I had an amazing night. So I, I, I yeah. And then people might be listening to this, thinking, "I must see a Kevin Quantum show." Mm. And if they live in the southeast of England, 
they have the opportunity soon because you'll be at the Warren for the Brighton Fringe Festival. Yep, I will be. Give us all the information, dates, uh, the exact show that you're you're taking there and all that kind of information. Right, so anti-gravity, that'll be in Brighton. Uh, it's going to be there in May, I think mid-May. I'm going to try and just check on my diary now because I do not know exactly when. Yeah, so um, 17th, 18th, 19th of May in Brighton. That'll be anti-gravity, my levitation show. Uh, I'm at the South Bank in London. Um, I think that's also May time. Where is it? I can't find it. It's sometime in May. If you go to Kevin... Oh, there, hold on. 28. Yeah, so I think it's 27, 28, 29. 26, 27, 28. I get confused. The, the time difference is hard for my diary to reconcile. Oh, yeah. um, so that's right at the end of April. Um, in Litchfield, Burton-on-Trent... There's, if you go to my website, there's a live shows link. There's a whole list of them. So there's a lot down in England, yeah, coming up, and then uh, yeah, so different shows. So Anti Gravity is going to be the one at Brighton in London. Litchfield's got Vanishing Point, and uh, I think we're taking and for my next trick, I've got three touring shows at the moment, uh, down to Burton on Trent. So different ones in different venues. Um, and I can't wait. It's um, it's a bit scattered on this tour, to be honest. But um, I want to try and put something a bit more coherent together for the future, and and actually just try to establish my name down there a bit more. I feel like people like Pete Furman and um, Ben Hanlon and the those guys, they're they're more established on that scene. Ben Hart as well. And and I I've come up with I don't know. I just sometimes I feel like I'm not really well known in the magic community, or at least I'm known as the faking it guy or the guy that runs the magic festival. I'd like to be known for some of the magic that I've made. So that's that's one of the targets for this coming year, to get some more stuff out there. Well, I keep doing what you're doing, and I think that that's definitely going to happen. Um, but I think, actually, you are well-known for your shows as well. That's kind of how I viewed you. Oh, um, yeah. That's kind of everything I wanted to chat about. Is there anything else kind of that you, you wanted to add, anything that I haven't asked that I could ask that I wouldn't know about? No, not really. I mean, it's uh, definitely kind of career highlights and highs and lows we've spoken about. Uh, I'll be in Edinburgh again with two shows um, for the Fringe, the whole Fringe. I'll be doing a new show called Neon Future, which is, uh, yeah, a brief look at the future. I've been inspired by a few journals that I've read recently, some Price Waterhouse Cooper journals that talk about the on the uh, advance of its automation and how they predict that if automation progresses at the same rate, we'll have 30% unemployment in 15 years, which is a frightening prospect. It's going to decimate society if that happens and then in about 45 years so within our lifetimes fingers crossed um artificial intelligence will be smarter than us so this these are massive things massive things like we're not going to be the smartest creatures on the planet anymore you know there will be people out there smart or things out there smarter than us that will decide our future and we're not talking about it it's fucking mental like it really is it just Blows my mind. So if it takes a magician uh, who fuses magic and science to talk about a stage, then that's what I'm going to do with Neon Future. And for my next trick, two will be more silly science, uh, comedy and magic, and uh, that'll be great fun. 6pm at Gilda Balloon for uh, Neon Future, and 9.20 with Underbelly for and for my next trick, too. Come see both. There's no deal, but come see both. <laughs> <laughs> Buy two for the price. <laughs> Kevin, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cade and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.